Our text this morning will be Isaiah chapter 11. You can open your Bibles there to Isaiah chapter 11. If you're using one of the red Bibles under the chairs, it should be on page 495. Page 495. As you turn there, um, I want to tell you I've been reading a book recently that Winston Churchill wrote about the start of World War I. And this was before he was the Prime Minister of England, if you know your history a little bit. But at that time in World War I, he was actually the head of their navy. They called it the Admiralty. And so he had responsibility to direct the ships of the British Navy over all of the oceans of the world. And in their war room, they had a map of the whole world. It was a huge map, 30 feet long, 20 feet wide, so he could see where everything was at. And he says um, in his book that the Pacific Ocean was so large that on that map, it took up almost 300 square feet. Almost half of that map was the Pacific Ocean. And this was before the day of radar, and so they would have little pins that would represent where their ships were at. And he tells us that that little pin on this huge, this huge ocean represented the full view that you could obtain from the mast of one of their ships uh, out on the ocean. So you can imagine you're up on the ocean, up on, a, up on the um, mast of a ship, and you look out as far as you can see in every direction, and that, all of that expanse is just a pin on the map of the Pacific Ocean. This gives you an idea of the vastness of the Pacific Ocean. So let me ask you a question. Now kids, maybe some of you have gotten through your you know, fifth grade science, and you can answer this one. But how much, if you think of that vast Pacific Ocean, bigger than we can even really understand, how much of that Pacific Ocean is covered with water? That's, that's not a trick question. Hopefully you know the answer to that. Hold that thought for a moment. Now I want you to transition and think of the people groups of the world. When we say people groups, we mean groups of people who have a distinct language, distinct culture. They can communicate effectively with one another. So there are about 200 countries in the world, but many of these countries have many, many, even thousands of people groups, people with distinct language, distinct culture, so they're able to communicate effectively. Now, estimates vary depending on how you count, but we can conservatively say that there's at least 12,000 people groups in the world. And of those 12,000... Approximately 7,000 of them have very little Christian presence, and, and some of them none at all, such that most of the people in these groups have never met a Christian, have never read the Bible, have never heard a Christian message. For many of them, and this is uh, um, true but sad, the only Christianity they will know is what they see through Hollywood. 7,000 people groups with a population of over 4 billion people. We have a hard time even thinking of numbers that large, 4 billion. So there are many places in the world today where the truth of the Bible, the truth that we hear every week, the truth that we can just open up our Bible and read, that, that truth is completely unknown. Many people in the world who live their entire lives without ever hearing the message of the Bible. But it will not always be so. In Isaiah 11, as we read today, we're going to see that Isaiah looks forward to a day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just as every square inch of that Pacific Ocean is covered with water, 
So one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And Isaiah does not mean abstract information of the, of, of the Lord, the abstract information, knowledge just somehow floating around the earth. He means that the earth will be full of people. People like you and me, disciples, people who know the Lord, who have been saved by the Lord, who have been redeemed by the Lord, who love the Lord and who worship Him. This is the plan of God for history from beginning to end. And it's also the goal of missions. Now, when we use the word missions here, we, we have in mind this work of making disciples through preaching the gospel and establishing local churches. Now, a disciple, you may know this, but a disciple is, is just someone who follows Jesus. People who, have, people who have come to believe in who Jesus is, come to believe for, in what he has done for them through his life, his death, and resurrection, and they've committed their lives to following Jesus. So missions is, is this work of making disciples among the people groups of the world through preaching the gospel and establishing local churches. In some ways, it's similar to what we do here in our church here today, but it also involves, more than what we do here, it also involves crossing over, taking the gospel to other people groups, crossing over barriers of language and culture and, and land, and communicating the gospel across those barriers by those people who are sent out by the church for that work. And that's, those people are who we call missionaries. And so the goal of missions is to fill the earth with disciples. As Isaiah says, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Other scriptures tell us that the goal is to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. You know, when people know the Lord, when they're disciples, they worship the Lord. They give Him glory and praise. So this morning, as we talk about the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord, sometimes I'll talk about it being filled with the glory of the Lord. And I'm going to use those interchangeably. The, the Bible talks about them both. They describe the same reality. And so we're going to see this morning that this purpose of the Lord, to fill the earth with His, with his glory, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord, it's not just some peripheral part of history. It didn't just begin in the New Testament even. It didn't begin when Jesus gave his commission to the disciples before he ascended into heaven. It goes all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to Genesis 1. So all of history is shaped by this purpose of the Lord from beginning to end. You know, our kids watch a, a daily 10-minute news program. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called World Watch. And at the end of it, they have a a tagline the host always says. Some of you might know it. I see some nodding heads. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. And I think I hope this is a reminder for us as we think about God's purpose from the beginning of creation all the way back to Genesis 1 through the storyline of the Bible. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. The volatility in our day, the uncertainty about the future, God has his purposes and they will stand. So if you're in Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through, 11, uh, 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. 
But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend, yet, extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west." And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is truth and it is light. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give our hearts light, illumination, understanding, conviction as we study your word together this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This chapter we can divide it into two main sections. And these are going to be the two main sections of this message. Verses 1 through 10, and then verses 11 through 16. In verses 1 through 10, we see that the earth will be full of the glory of God when Jesus reigns in the new creation. The earth will be full of the glory of God when Jesus reigns in the new creation. These verses tell us what God will do, where history is going. And then second in verses 11 through 16, we see that God will fill the earth with his glory by saving and judging the nations in what we're going to call a second exodus. God will fill the earth with his glory by saving and judging the nations in a second exodus. Verses verse 1 through 10 tell us what God will do. Verses 11 through 16 tell us how God will do it. Before we dive into Isaiah 11, though, I want you to take us all the way back. I mentioned this a minute ago. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But in Genesis chapter 1, we read about how God created the world. 
God, God created the whole world in six days. He created the world, and then he filled it with all of the creatures that live in it. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, he gives the account of the climactic event of the creation week, when he made mankind. He made man and woman. It says in Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's a lot that could be said about those three verses, but let me just point out two things. You heard it probably repeated in there three times. Mankind was made in the image of God. This is unique about humanity. Among all the created beings, humans are the only only ones who bear the image of God. We were created to display and reflect the image of God, the character of God. An image is a reflection of what it displays. It's not the ultimate reality itself. The ultimate reality is God, where God says, let us make man in our image. And yet he made us humans in his image. We are created to image him, to reflect his glory, to display his glory. But then secondly, he didn't just create them to do that statically. He created created the first couple, Adam and Eve. They were placed in the Garden of Eden where they dwelled with God. But God told them not not to stay there and not to stay um, only two. He told them to be fruitful, to multiply, to increase in number, and also to spread out. To fill the earth. To take the presence of God from Eden and expand it. as In a sense, to expand the Garden of Eden to cover the whole earth. You can maybe imagine what it might have been like if they had obeyed this commission. If humans were multiplying fruitfully, flourishing in society, peaceful, justice was done. They were reflecting the glory and character and knowledge of God. But it's hard in our present experience to understand that, isn't it? Because just a few chapters later in Genesis 3, the story goes on that Adam and Eve throw this away and they decide to live their own way. And ever since, we live in a world that is broken. So if you read through the Genesis narrative, the next time you read of the earth being filled with anything, it's not filled with the glory and knowledge of God as reflected and displayed by these image-bearing creatures that God made. Instead, in Genesis 6, verse 11, you read this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Instead of filling the earth with glory and knowledge of God, mankind filled the earth with violence and corruption. So in other words, if it wasn't already clear, Adam and his offspring clearly failed to fulfill this commission that God had given them in Genesis 1. And so God brought a terrifying judgment upon the earth. Kids, you remember the story. God brought a judgment of a great flood and wiped out humanity. With the exception of Noah and his offspring, 
And God, but God did not abandon that original, that original commission, that original purpose from Genesis 1. Instead, he actually repeats it. If you go back and you read Genesis 9, verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He starts over, the purpose remains the same, but now he starts over with Noah and his offspring. You'll notice, though, some trends here in the biblical storyline, because shortly thereafter, Noah and his offspring also fail. Instead of filling the earth with the glory of God, they decide to actually stay in one place and make a name for themselves. That's Genesis 11. Instead of making a name for God and displaying God's glory, they, do, they want to make a name for themselves. And so God judges them. He scatters them among the nations and divides them into multiple people groups with multiple languages. And then in Genesis 12, he starts over with Abraham. The rest of the book of Genesis is the story of Abraham and his descendants. You remember them, Isaac and Jacob and, and Jacob's sons. And their story doesn't get much better. You read about lying, cheating, adultery, betrayal, revenge. It doesn't seem like they're going to do much better. And yet, if you read the book of, in the book of Exodus, the next book after Genesis, the very beginning in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, we see that God's purpose for his people remains. Exodus 1, verse 7, you hear the echoes of Genesis 1. It says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You hear those echoes of Genesis 1. The commission that God had given to Adam and then to Noah had now been passed down to Abraham and his offspring in the nation of Israel. And it appears that for a time at least, the people were, were fulfilling this commission. But the trend continues. The people fail. You read on in the book of Exodus. We're going to come back to the story of the Exodus later when we hear about the second Exodus. But in this first Exodus event, you see the people living in Egypt. They're enslaved to their Egyptian taskmasters. They're oppressed. They're treated unfairly. They cry out to God, and God sends Moses to deliver them by powerful signs and ten plagues, and he judges the nation of Egypt. This event in the Exodus really becomes a paradigm for God's work for the rest of the Old Testament, a paradigm that will be repeated later, where God saves his people and he judges their enemies. Where he saves his people and he judges their enemies. And he does it, we're told, with a mighty hand. You read through the book of Exodus and you'll see that multiple times. Exodus 3, Exodus 6, Exodus 15. God works with a mighty hand to deliver his people, to redeem them. We use that word to redeem. We sang about it, I am redeemed. It means we're bought, we're, we're bought out of slavery. The people of Israel were in slavery to Egypt. And God redeemed them out of that slavery, out of that captivity. And he brought them out. And he brought them to his promised land. But before he did that, he, he gave them his law. And he commissioned them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those verses that Paul read in 1 Peter 2. God first gave that commission to Israel that they would be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That they would take this purpose from the beginning and they would be a light to the nations. They would re represent God and his character and glory to the nations. That's why it's such a big deal actually when they come into the, the land of the, of the promised land, the land of Canaan. 
that God commanded them to drive out the inhabitants because he didn't want them to be contaminated. He wanted them to be holy. He didn't want them to adopt the, the pagan idolatrous practices of those nations. They were to represent God to the nations around them. And yet, if you read through the Bible storyline, coming up to where we are in Isaiah, you see that instead of being a light for the nations, the people became like the nations. In fact, even worse at times. There are some bright points in in their history, particularly if you think of the reign of David, who was their greatest king. But even then, there is sin and corruption and darkness. In those times of darkness, God continues to send his prophets. Isaiah was one of these prophets. Men who were commissioned by God to call the people back to him, to God. Call them back to their original purpose, to be a holy nation unto God, to represent him to the nations. So Isaiah is one of those prophets. He is sent by God to prophesy to the nation of Israel at a time of decline. There's moral decline, there's political decline. And God actually promises them that he's going to judge them for their sin. Judgment is coming through the nations of Assyria and then later Babylon. So in the midst of this judgment, this sin, this decline, the news headlines are certainly negative, yet Isaiah looks forward to a time when that original purpose that God gave to Adam in Genesis 1, when that original purpose would be fulfilled. So in verses 1 through 10, we're going to see here that the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord when Jesus reigns in the new creation. We're going to walk through verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to hit the high points for the sake of time. And we're going to see how the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. That original purpose will be fulfilled ultimately at the end of history when Jesus reigns in the new creation. In Isaiah 11 verse 1, we read about a shoot that rises up from a stump. The stump of Jesse. If you've ever camped on the coast, you've seen some massive stumps. Redwood trees that were grew so high that lightning struck them, they burned down, and the stump remains. And oftentimes those stumps are still alive. And you see little shoots, little redwood um, shoots rising up out of those stumps. And that's somewhat of the picture that we, Isaiah has in mind here. This stump, though, it's a stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David, as I mentioned, was the greatest king in the land of Israel. And so this stump represents his house, his, the monarchy in Israel. And yet we see that it's a stump because that tree was cut off. In fact, it was going to be cut off through the invasion of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God was going to bring judgment, and it would be devastating. People would be killed, people would be taken away into exiles, families would be disrupted, the temple would be destroyed, and it would appear for a time that the promises of God, that the purposes of God were, for, were forgotten. But from that stump will come a shoot. And that shoot represents the future ruler of God's people. A future ruler who would come from the line of David. Although David's descendants had often been wicked men who led people into idolatry and sin, and even though that that line had been cut off for a time, from that line a future ruler would come. And this is why Matthew begins his gospel. If If you read at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew begins with the genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1 verse 1. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Jesus comes as this king from the line of David. In verse 2, we see that this 
future king from the line of David, that he will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will rest upon him and will empower him for his work. He will give him wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. You remember at Jesus' baptism, Matthew Chapter 3, Matthew, Matthew tells us in Matthew 3.16, at the baptism of Jesus, he says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. This is what happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is this figure. He is the one, he is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He is the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest. In verses 3 through 5, we change scenes a little bit, and we see now that this king from the line of David, who will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, he will rule the whole earth with righteousness and justice. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to try and resolve disputes when you actually don't know exactly what happened. You hear two, you know that there, there is a real fact. Something happened, and yet you hear multiple different versions of the same event. And it's hard. You don't know. Okay, finally, okay, you all go to your room. You're all in trouble. You don't really know what's, what's, what really happened. Imagine now if you um, were responsible to govern something larger than your own family, like, say, maybe the entire earth and all of the nations of the earth. This is what Jesus will will govern as king. And he will do it perfectly. It says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He's not going to show favoritism. He's going to rule with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness. Those who are poor and meek, those who often get the short end of the stick, they will be judged with righteousness and equity. And the wicked, those who often seem to prosper, those who often seem to get away with things on this earth, they will be punished for their wickedness. Let this be an encouragement to you. Now, perhaps life seems unfair. Perhaps you've been mistreated. Perhaps you feel like no one understands what you're going through and things have gone so wrong that there is no way back to make things right. Maybe that's you this morning. On this day, when Jesus reigns with justice, when he reigns with righteousness, all will be made right. It will be a time of vindication and triumph for the people of God. But at the same time, it will be a time of terrifying judgment for God's enemies. You might notice here that we've passed from events that occurred at the beginning or in the first century when Jesus came. I I quoted Matthew 1 and Matthew 3. Jesus came in history 2,000 years ago, and these events began to come to their fulfillment then. But we don't yet see these events described in verses 3 through 5 occurring in their fullness yet. This is common in the prophets, and you can think of it as though you're looking at a mountain range. You You see two mountains, and you think that they're one right behind the other. But when you get up, you finally get up to the top of the first mountain and you think you've arrived, you find that there's miles and miles of a valley in between. We're in those, that valley right now. Jesus has come in the first century as the ruler from the line of David, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That happened in history in the first century. And now we're living in the interim between the fulfillment of these promises. He will come again. He will rule the world with justice and righteousness. But we're in the interim between those times. 
in verses 6 through 9, we see the result of this. When Jesus reigns in righteousness, when he reigns in justice, then peace and prosperity will, will finally flourish on the earth. It will be a restoration of Eden. The place where God dwelled with man in perfect relationship, when things were right between God and man, where things were right between man and man, and man and woman, when things were right between man and the created world, that's how the world was supposed to be. And Isaiah tells us that we will return to that time. There will be a return to Eden. Paradise will not always be lost. You know, you look at these verses in 6 through 9, and I know some of you out there, you want to understand the scientific basis for what Isaiah is describing. He says things like, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And some of you are probably asking, well, what does this mean? Is the digestive system of carnivores going to be able to digest grass? And Isaiah doesn't answer that for us, and that's not even the intent of this prophecy. Instead, he wants to show us that the world will be in harmony, that it will be in peace. And he wants to show us that humanity will be restored to our original purpose. In Genesis 1, God had given us the purpose, the, the, the role of taking dominion over the created world. And you notice here, the little child, he's leading the calf and the lion and the fattened calf. He's leading the animals. He also wants us to see that the curse of Genesis 3 will be undone. The curse that has plagued humanity because of sin ever since that day. You remember in Genesis 3 that Satan took the form of a serpent. And he tempted the woman and led her and her offspring and Adam all into sin. And now Isaiah wants us to see that that curse will be undone in this future day. Because the nursing child, a five-month-old son, shall play over the hole of the cobra. Every mother's nightmare (laughs) The world will be so changed. Everything that's broken and fearful in the world will be undone. Everything will be made right. And and that's what Isaiah wants us to see. The brokenness that seems so normal to us because we've never lived in a world that is not broken by sin, that's not under a curse. All of that will be undone in a dramatic reversal at the end of the age. And verse 9 tells us why. Verse 9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. We saw the holy mountain reference in Isaiah 2. That's, the, that's a metaphor for the presence of the Lord. The, the earth will be full of the presence of the Lord, and they shall not hurt or destroy. And the reason why he tells us in the rest of verse 9, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The purpose of God from Genesis 1 will at last be fulfilled. Individual people like you and I from all the peoples of the earth will come to know the Lord, will come to have personal relationship with the Lord. We will love the Lord. We will see how we've been redeemed from our sin and we've been transformed by Him and we will desire to worship Him. Is that true for you this morning? Oh, that it might be true for you and for me that we would know the Lord and that we would long for the day when the earth will be full of those who know the Lord. This is what missions is all about. This is the first section of Isaiah 11. See that the earth will be full of the glory of God when Jesus reigns in the new creation. That's where history is going. That's the end of the story. 
But now the second half of Isaiah 11, in verses 11 through 16, he tells us how we will get there. He tells us the means that God will use to bring this about. And he tells us that it will be by saving and judging the nations in the second exodus. By saving and judging the nations in the second exodus. This is how God will fill the earth with his glory. Verse 11, it says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. You remember, I referred to this earlier, God acted in the exodus with a mighty hand. You know, God doesn't have a physical body like we do. He doesn't have an arm that he literally stretches out. But this is a metaphor to tell us that God acted with his power and his might and his majesty to complete an act of both salvation and judgment. You remember salvation for God's people. They were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. But at the same time, judgment for the Egyptians. The ten plagues fell upon Egypt, and then ultimately at the Red Sea, the nation, the armies of Egypt were destroyed in, in, the, in the Red Sea. God acted in salvation and judgment at the first exodus. And Isaiah tells us now that God will act a second time to extend his hand to recover the remnant that remains of his people. We see in the rest of verse 11 that this remnant comes from all over the known world. You see the list of nations there, from Assyria, from Egypt. Those were the world powers at the time, the dominant world powers. But Also from Pathros, from Cush, that was from Africa and the places south of Egypt. From Elam and from Shinar, those were places east of Assyria and what would become Babylon. From Hamath, that was up to the north, and from the coastlands, or some translations say islands of the sea, that would have been to the west. So from the entire known world, Isaiah is looking forward to the time when God would gather in the remnant that remains of his people. This would be a second exodus. You may notice that some of the language seems to indicate a future restoration of the nation of Israel, as in verse 12 where he says he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. And some would interpret this to apply to the nation of Israel alone, but I think that Isaiah makes clear, especially through the entire book, but even in this text, that this second exodus, when God works in salvation and judgment, it's going to be too great a work for it to apply to one people only. It will apply to all of the nations of the earth. If you look at verse 16, I think you can see this. In verse 16, he's thinking of this exodus, when God's going to bring the people out, and he says, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. And there he contrasts, he says, that remnant, the remnant that remains of his people that will come on this highway He compares them to the nation of Israel. He says, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. That was the first exodus, when Israel came up out of the land of Egypt. The second exodus is when the remnant that remains of his people comes from all the four corners of the earth. Isaiah 19 makes this even more clear, that God has envisioned an expanded people of Israel. In Isaiah 19, he talks about the same same phenomenon of a highway that will bring back the people of God. And he says in that day that there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And Israel, imagine this, Israel, the people of God, they will be third with Egypt and Assyria. 
whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. All that to say, God is, in this second exodus, it will be too great a work. As he says in Isaiah 49, it's too light a thing to, that you should be my servant, talking to Jesus, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Yes, there will be salvation for Israel. But, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the thrust of Isaiah 11 as well. That God would save a remnant of his people from all the four corners of the earth. As Jesus even said in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 31, when he says that he will bring back the people from all the four corners of the earth. He will gather them in. But he will not only save his people. We see in verses 14 and 15, he's also going to judge his enemies. All those who have been opposed to God and His purposes, who have lived in rebellion against God, will be judged in this mighty act, in this second exodus. So think about this for a second. In the first exodus, the people of Israel are enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. God sees the groaning of His people in their slavery to their Egyptian rulers. In this second exodus, God sees the groaning of his people in their slavery. This time, to a greater and more demanding taskmaster. A universal taskmaster. Sin and death. In the first exodus, God acts to redeem, that is, buy back from slavery his chosen people and deliver them from Egypt. In the second exodus... God acts to redeem his people, to buy them back from slavery, but not from a human taskmaster, to buy them back from their slavery, their bondage to sin and death. In the first exodus, God acts in mighty judgment upon Egypt. He pours out his wrath upon them in ten plagues, and yet at the same time, he shields his people by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. In the second exodus, God will act in mighty judgment upon sin. He, will, he pours out his wrath upon the sin of his people. And yet, he shields them at the same time by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. He accomplished all of this by transferring their sin to a substitute, to the God-man himself, to Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who was punished as a sinner so that God's sinful people like you and, you and I, would be redeemed, would be bought back from sin. In the first exodus, God then constitutes a people for himself. He gives them his law. He brings them into their promised homeland, in the land of Canaan. In the second exodus, God also constitutes a people for himself. They've been delivered from slavery to sin. He writes his law upon their heart. He gives them his Holy Spirit. He forms them into his people, the church. And then he brings them to their promised homeland, the new creation. In one sense, this second exodus already happened. Because it happened when Jesus Christ, having lived a perfect life, was executed upon a Roman cross 2,000 years ago in history, and at that moment he absorbed the wrath of God, the infinite wrath of God against the sin of his people. 
As he hung upon that cursed tree. He absorbed the wrath. He became a curse. He paid the price for deliverance from bondage. And we know that it was fully paid. We know that sin and death were were defeated because on the third day, he rose from the dead. The price was paid. Death no longer has dominion over him. And yet, in another sense, this second exodus is still ongoing. God continues to gather people to himself. He continues to bring sinners to himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every people group. He's gathering them in from the four corners of the earth and forming a people of God. As Jesus himself said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. This second exodus work of deliverance from sin for the people of God is still ongoing. And it will continue until the day of final judgment when Jesus is revealed from heaven in glory and he will bring his people at last into the new creation. So have you been delivered in this second exodus? The Bible is clear that all are in bondage to sin. We know that because everyone dies. And death is the punishment for sin. All are in bondage to sin. But when you come to God in humble faith, when you confess that He is Lord, when you believe that God raised Him from the dead, that He paid the penalty that you deserved for your sin, then you can be delivered. You can be rescued from sin and from death. I just went yesterday to a memorial service for um, a friend of ours. And I heard this morning about someone who, um, a family member who passed away. You don't know how much time you have. You don't know if you can just, you know, wait until you live out your days and then make a decision to come to know Christ, to come to believe the gospel. So do not put this off until tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow may bring. Today is the day of salvation. Because if you do not come to God in humble faith, if you are not gathered in as the people of God, while you have opportunity, then as our text shows us, you must stand before God at the final judgment and receive the just punishment for your sin, which is eternal death. So we've seen from Isaiah 11, Verses 1 through 10, the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord when Jesus reigns in the new creation. And we've seen the way that God does that is by saving and judging the nations in the second exodus. Now in closing, I just want to offer four implications, four takeaways from this, what we've seen, that pertain specifically to global missions. First, I just want to point out that global missions must be grounded in the gospel. You know, this text shows us a glorious hope of human flourishing where things are made right, where there's peace and prosperity and the world is the way it's supposed to be. And you would find a lot of people that would agree with that vision for humanity. You could find a lot of different political parties, humanitarian groups, social groups that would also would say things that are similar. That they, are, they want the same thing. They want human flourishing too. But as our text shows us, you can't have that hope without Jesus reigning in the new creation. 
You can't have that hope without what Jesus did through his life and death and resurrection. The gospel is the foundation upon which human flourishing happens. It's the foundation upon which human... Uh, which, which, upon which peace and prosperity happen. So when missionaries or mission agencies or even churches like ours begin to drift away from the gospel and we begin to assume the gospel and maybe we water it down or we de-emphasize it or we focus on other things, we're like ships that have raised anchor and we don't realize that we've started to drift. So it's true, mission work will require a focus on a lot of other things. You'll have to learn about culture and language and Bible translation, and there will be humanitarian work and business and a variety of other things. And yet, just like ministry in Redding, California, requires a laser-sharp focus on the gospel, so ministry in Ukraine and South Africa and the Middle East requires a laser-sharp focus on the gospel. Missions must be grounded in the gospel, and we must be wary in the world that we live in, of works that are drifting from the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the foundation upon which human flourishing happens. That's the first implication I want to offer. The second is that global missions will be accomplished by the power of God. That's what we see in Isaiah eleven eleven. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Now, I mentioned at the beginning this 7,000 people groups without a strong gospel witness, four billion people. It's overwhelming. And plead with God to send laborers into the harvest. But it is not right that we should feel overwhelmed and panicked and anxious and afraid because the mighty hand of God will accomplish all of his purposes. Yes, it's true. The power of God does not eliminate the need for sacrifice or commitment on the part of missionaries in local churches. It's actually quite the opposite. The power of God is what guarantees the ultimate success for the sacrifice and commitment of missionaries and local churches. The power of God is what guarantees their success. It's why we can go out, why we can sacrifice, why we can commit, why we can give up everything to go to tell others about the gospel. So we must pray for missionaries to be sent out. We must give sacrificially for missionaries to be well supplied. And we must even send out our own church members, perhaps you, perhaps your son or your daughter, your grandchildren, to be missionaries. But we must not forget that God will accomplish all his purposes. In our day, many missionaries, many mission agencies, they see that daunt, those daunting numbers, and it is daunting. And there's a temptation to think that maybe there's a faster way. Maybe there's a simpler way. Maybe we could streamline the process so that we don't have to actually share the gospel and disciple people and form a church. Maybe, maybe there's a faster way. We need to be aware of this and we need to remember. We need to trust in God, the gospel and we need to trust in God's methods. His arm is not short. His power is not limited. Global missions will be accomplished by the power of God. Third, that global missions will not undermine the judgment of the wicked. I'll be quick here. But there's also a temptation as we... It's, this is a heavy thing. If you actually think about this, I mean, four billion people is hard to comprehend. But if you think about four billion people, think about your own children, and then multiply that by four billion, who are going to be, live their whole life, never hear the gospel, and perish, and be judged for all eternity. This is overwhelming. It can crush your soul. 
And when people, many people, in the light of this overwhelming reality, are tempted to think that maybe there's another way. Maybe conscious faith in Christ isn't actually required. Maybe God will somehow save people who have never heard the gospel. And we can sympathize with that motivation. We ought to sympathize with that. We ought to feel the weight of that in our soul. And yet we do need to maintain Scripture's clear teaching that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that faith in Christ is required for salvation. So we need to, on the one hand, feel that sense of urgency for those who have never heard the gospel. And yet, as Abraham said, when Sodom and Gomorrah were being destroyed, he said, we must also trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And lastly, in closing, I want to suggest to you that the resurrection guarantees the success of global missions. See, if Jesus really did accomplish the second exodus, if he really did pay the redemption price for sin, if he really did rise from the dead, then the work of global missions is in one sense just the final outworking. Converse is true. If he didn't rise from the dead, then Christians, and especially missionaries, are most to be pitied, for they're giving up everything to go for a lie. And yet, it is our belief, our conviction, we are persuaded that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so whatever sacrifice we make for the cause of the nations, for taking the gospel to the nations, will be repaid 10,000 times over. It is no sacrifice at all. Because just on the other side of this present world, a new creation is coming. And we will always be with the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your mighty work that you are doing through the deliverance that you purchased for us through the death of your Son, Jesus. And we look forward to the day when we will gather with the nations around your throne and fall down in worship before you, for you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And help us, God, as a local church now, as individual Christians now, to be faithful in sharing the gospel and in sending out missionaries so that the nations might know the hope that we have. In Christ's name, amen.